So we want to welcome you to another installment of Disciple Life, the Bible, and Everyday Life. Uh, Pastor Dan, uh, you brought us a message out of Philippians chapter 2, uh, the first 11 verses. So as I always ask, what, how, how did, the, did the Holy Spirit lead you to bring us a message from that selection from the week's worth of readings? Sure. Um, so our theme uh, that, that we were led to this, this past week was the focus on the, the theme of love. Um, and as we were working through that, uh, and that was praying through that, I, uh, I considered what is you know, regarded to be a, a, a well-known passage of Scripture, that being the Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses, as an expression of the love of God. Um, and that love is expressed in the great humility that's demonstrated by God in the second person of the Trinity. Um, speaking of the debasement uh, that, that Jesus subjected himself willingly to um, in abandoning heaven. I don't know that we always uh, consider uh, or associate love with humility. Um, or they go hand in hand. And so um, in, in considering where we are societally, um, where we are um, in, in contemporary culture, uh, humility is a, is, a, is a fleeting concept. And so as we were encountering the theme of love in this last week, um, I felt led uh, towards the opportunity to, to pair the two as scripture does. Right. And I, as you can, as you can imagine, then perhaps because not many people actually pair the two and the two together, speaking of humility and love, I, I thought it was quite refreshing to hear as Paul is exhorting the church in Philippi to, to adopt the, the mind of Christ, which was one of your main points throughout the entire message, that we need to adopt this mindset, this, this way of living, if you will. And so with that in mind, the, the first question that I have uh, to actually get to allow you mo to go deeper with us and to lead us alongside you. How do you see Philippians 2 speaking directly to the church during Advent? So you already answered some of that, but I would like for you to take time to maybe guide us into a more applicational um, level of this truth. Yeah, I saw I saw something this past week on Twitter that's one of those mic drop one liners um, that that Advent invites us into waiting. Um, the idea of Advent, the the first Advent of Christ or the incarnation that's uh, that's directly pointed to in this passage, um, that the the saints before um, before the cross we're waiting expectantly for the coming of the Messiah. And we on the other side of the cross are waiting expectantly for the coming of the Messiah once more for the final deliverance. Um, the idea of, of waiting challenges each of us in this Advent season to accept the fact that we can't. And while we're waiting, God is. God is at work. Um, and, and the idea of waiting is that we're not, we're, we're passive. And though we may be busy, though this holiday season may present hustle and bustle, 
um, and our vocations and our families introduce uh, varying levels of busyness. Um, the the notion that um, that waiting for the advent, if if you will, is what uh, what is what we encounter uh, or what we need to encounter uh, once more. Um, so then, bringing that. Uh, that, that that's just the maybe a general answer about Advent and sure um, that maybe I haven't offered in the last two times we've gotten together. Um, so so in this idea of waiting, we see beautifully uh, as the spirits led Paul to write um, in, in a very uh, brief manner. We're just talking about a, a few verses to to convey this. Um, this waiting, this expectation is fulfilled in humility, not not our humility, but God's. And so um, the when we're looking to to seek to speak to the church today, um, I wonder how how we see ourselves as humble actors. Um, maybe actors isn't the best word because um, I don't want to give the idea of performing, um, but the. Christians who are living this this humble lifestyle um, in and before others, particularly in this Advent season that is bound up by busyness and self-interest. Um, I won't say who, but someone who I love dearly went went uh, Christmas shopping just recently, and um, the, they went with a, a, a list of names whom they were going to buy gifts for. And it turned out that they came home with nothing for those those people that they were buying gifts for, but a number of items for themselves. Um, and so the there, there's a lot of self love that that we express, um, even in those moments where we, with every intention, are seeking to shop out of a generous spirit. Um, when it comes to those great sales and whatever else that's going on, we prioritize self. Um, right and in following Jesus Christ, we're following the one who deprioritized himself, if you will. Um, and right. in that deprioritization, he has won for himself the church. And in the in that, he's also won for one for himself uh, the the name above every name, um, and made himself King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so. Um, it, there, there's so much for us in this Advent season to learn in following the example of Christ and his humble expression of God's own nature of love that I know it's an uncommon passage for us to encounter um, in, in the Advent season, but I think it no less rich and appropriate. Right. Um I think one of the things that really resonates is hearing the, you said not acting because we're not pretending, but rather I think I, you made me think in the moment of uh, the reflection, like a mirror, a person looking into the mirror and, and we are the mirror and, and Christ is the person. How well can we reflect him? Uh, are we covered by mire and mud or fog or are we fully, re fully on reflecting him to the world? So that's what that's what came to mind, um, as you said. Well, maybe not acting. Um, 
I think that's right on. The, the following question that I have for you is, you made a quote that I think got people's attention, and it definitely caught mine, because this is not something pastors tell the congregations. You mentioned in the, in the sermon uh, the following, do not read the Bible if you want the things of the world. And then you also continue to talk about the priorities of the world, which um, I bet to, I, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, uh, I would wager to say that that probably raised a few eyebrows and hopefully for for a good reason. Um, how does the offense of the gospel work to our advantage? Who is our? I want to make sure I'm, I'm defining the question well. For the listeners, for the, the audience, so for the for the disciples of Christ, or even for those who would receive the gift of salvation. Um, how would right. the offense of the gospel work to our advantage? Um, well, if if you're if you're offended by a statement like that, then I would say good. Um, I'd say good because Jesus, uh, when he invited anyone to follow him, he said he he did so in this manner. He said, if anyone would come after me, uh, they would pick up their cross and follow me. And there's the call in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, um, the call to self-denial. And so if you're in in offense to a statement like, I wouldn't encourage you to read the Bible um, if, uh, if, if you're someone who is pursuing earthly um, means or, or, or vain things, um, I, I say that in love. I say that in humility. I don't, I don't, I don't just um, ignorantly say something like that. Um, but it sure. is to say that when we're pursuing our self-interests, we're very likely not on a kingdom course. Um, and so in, in working that out for our good, what we would actually find is that when we've abandoned those pursuits and instead are following the leadership of the Holy Spirit um, in, in becoming um, partakers in, in kingdom affairs, then, then we will actually know the true riches of heaven in our lives. That doesn't, that when I say a word like riches, that doesn't uh, relate to or, or guarantee or ensure uh, money in your pocket or gold bars in your closet or anything like that. Um, but it is to know the presence of God in your life and the, the rich blessing that that is. Um, so just just so I can kind of give you the some of the scriptural background to that, um, there's there are frequent um, frequently occurring patterns of call that, that occur within scripture where God calls somebody to do something, calls somebody to salvation, calls somebody to go somewhere. And in every one of those calls, it is a call to abandon the way they were going and abandon the way that they were living to pursue um, the a, a life that honors God and a life that is faithful to that call. Um, right. You find early in, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, there's a, a man named Abram who's introduced to us. And uh, Abram is from uh, a place called the Ur of the Chaldees. And he uh, he gets called from that city, that city, um, even though it's 4000 years ago, um, 
it uh, that city had every technological advancement that you might imagine. Uh, I've read and studied about where the city that Abram was called from. They right. had uh, they had means to warm their 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 uh, homes in the winter. Um, they had some measure of indoor plumbing. Um, not right. the conventional, you know, flush your toilet thing, but a means to carry waste away, which was unique um, for for the area and the world. Um, so they they had many of the comforts that you and I celebrate and just assume. Yet God calls him away from the most technologically advanced place in the world at that time and says, Abram, I want you to, to leave this place. I need you to go somewhere. I'm not even telling you where, um, but you're going to leave your job. You're going to leave your livelihood. You're going to leave the security of your home and your family. Take your wife with you. Um, but everything you know that's brought you comfort, I need you to leave it behind to follow me. And he does. And he's met with uh, God's own faithfulness. If God, if God promises something, God will deliver whatever it is he said he's promised to do. Um, and Abram knows the rich, the richness of God's blessing because of the fellowship that God extended to him. Um, and you find this pattern over and over and over again. And so, um, if we were approaching the Bible, uh, as those who are not leaving our errs, if you will, but seeking to have God's pat on the back while remaining in our, in our, of the Chaldees, um, what we'll actually find is scripture would never give us a pat on the back in that regard, but in fact would call us to abandon those things. Right. Uh, definitely. I can, I can see how the, uh, the constant call to away from our comfort zone, which is something that even in private conversations we have here as, as a pastoral team, we have about the difficulty in Christianity is not so much the call to salvation. It's rather that, the call to salvation, the call to discipleship, calls us away from things that we hold dear um, outside of Christ, uh, things that even our culture and society would say are important to have. Uh, and, some, and even in the way that Jesus describes it, if the love you have for me does not make the love you have for your parents to appear as hate, then you're not ready to follow me. Um, it's that type of that type of commitment, and, and I can definitely see that. And by the way, I, I, disclaimer: I, I'm, it wasn't trying to be a gotcha question. It's rather it, it's a good explanation for everyone who hears the sermon, which are, are linked to these videos, to know where you're coming from when you say that, because there's always people out there who would do anything to take things out of out of context. Sure. So thank you for sure. that. It's easy. it's easy to take a one liner out of context. Um, I don't want anybody to not read their Bibles, but I, I say that genuinely that if you're reading to, to find God's affirmation of you constantly pursuing gaining more resources or a bigger paycheck or a bigger house, I'm going to encourage you to consider that's that's likely not what God has for you. Right. Because those things um, are going to create separation between you and him. The the. Right. You, you will find that you are worshiping those things and those pursuits and not the living God. Right. And again, we hear, we see that Jesus teaching directly on that saying, you cannot serve God and money. Uh, you cannot serve uh, God and Mammon. 
for you will love one master, hate the other type of thing. So right. um, uh, go ahead. Oh, that's it. Oh, I thought you had you were having a thought, so I wanted to allow that. Sorry. All right. The following question. You also stated during the sermon, Jesus' life is a testament of love. In what ways are Christians called to follow this example? And where do you see the opportunities for the church? Capital letter C. Um, the church to grow in this area of following this testament of love that we see in Christ Jesus. So, again, coming back to Jesus calling us to follow him, um, also acknowledging that upon, upon genuine faith unto salvation that we receive the spirit of Christ, um, the call for the life of the disciple of Jesus, that's the saved person, if I can say it that simply, is to to live the life of Christ. Now, um, so as to say our standard is Jesus, if I can say it that simply. Um, we need to balance this with the awareness that we give ourselves grace because Jesus was perfect and we're not. Um, and that's not to excuse, but it is to to give us room for grace. So I want to say that up front. Um, but we look at the examples uh, from Jesus's life that are recorded for us in Scripture. Um, and you find all throughout, all throughout. The, Jesus's readiness to love through service, as well as um, that that genuine brotherly love as well. Like there, there is that emotional connection, that emotional bond love that we, that we know, but he also showed his love through serving others. Um, it, we, we say today that, you know, that, that guy's great. He'd give the coat off his back to anybody. It was sure off his back to anybody. Um, that idea, you know, much more deep, obviously Jesus goes to a cross and dies. Um, but it's it's that idea that that we are we are not living for ourselves because our lives when we come to when we've come to understand our, our relationship before a holy God um, and to to understand uh, our lives in relationship with that holy God, then we come to also understand that our lives were never ours in the first place and that He has given to us life and that our lives are His and that life has been given for us to steward or to take care of, um, all for his purpose uh, and his glory. And so right. we then begin to live this life led by the spirit of Christ, uh, conforming ourselves to the standard of Christ, seeking to grow in his likeness. Um, and so that means we're practically loving others through service. Um, so that's, that's the starting point. And so in what way, so that I think that answers in what ways it's, it's every mm -hmm. way that Jesus does. Um, it's every way, anything less than the standard of Jesus is, is not living the Christian life that's compromising with the world in some way. Um, so where, what are our opportunities? Well, I think our opportunities is when Car brother Carlos says the big C church, he means any of us, you know, we're, we're pastors at a Baptist church. We could be talking about folks at a Methodist church or a Pentecostal church. We're talking any, any true gospel believing Christian. 
Um, right. What are ways that we can we can grow in this area? We stop making excuses. <laughs> uh, what do I mean by that? Um, what I mean by that is we have to come back to the foundational um, elements that form each of our theologies. Um, yes, there are some things that are particular to us as distinct tribes of Christianity, but there are foundational um, everyday commonly held beliefs across us the Christian spectrum. The first one is <laughs> given to us right at the open of our Bibles. And it's the fact that every human being has been created in the image of God. And so Amen. when we start with that, that understanding, that awareness that every life is created in the image of God, then that means every life is is worthy of dignity and honor because God, if you will, has his thumbprint impressed upon that life. And we are to serve them in the in the love of Christ, irrespective of whatever excuses we might try to make up. Um, and so I'm challenging us right now. I'm not and I'm not calling for what I, I'm, I'm narrowly speaking about. Christ-like love. I'm not talking about acceptance within church or membership within church. There's repentance and we have to turn from sins, but in just serving others. Can we love our neighbor who was born in another country and may have come across a unfenced border? Can we love our neighbor through Christian service and dine with them if they are in a, a same-sex, if they're practicing same-sex relations? Can we love them enough to, to be Christ to them? Or right. do we begin to build walls because in our religious piety, we have it right, they have it wrong, they're eternally damned? Um, and I, I would challenge us with the notion, well, who then would take the gospel to them? Um, and so we need to move past the places that make us uncomfortable, because I promise you, when you meet the Jesus of the scriptures, he made all of the religious, uh, the, the super religious types uncomfortable. Jesus should make us each uncomfortable. Right. I totally agreed. And, and I think those are wonderful starting points for us to Again, take the opportunities to grow. I can find some more hot buttons if you want me to. I, mean, I can just go oh, like full. Yeah, I know you can. As a matter of fact, you, you mentioned the, one of the cultural issues is right now the gender and uh, yeah. sexual identity type of thing with well over, I think it's over 100 uh, pronouns that they have come to associate with people of different uh, I guess, understandings of themselves, not just men and women, male, female. Um, there was a clip from a, a, one of the latest sermons from Alistair Begg, where he says, if you're a Christian, you read the Bible and, and you read it for what it is with, uh, with the best hermeneutic possible being that you are not going to edit the word. If you edit the word, you're not reading the Bible to know God. You're reading the Bible presuming to be God. And then he then jumps into another uh, aspect of his sermon where he says, the world has, the world has heard two things uh, 
regarding people who are homosexual and people who have this issue with the sexuality debate that you have heard people who affirm and say you, this is your truth and you have heard people who um uh condemn and are disdainful uh, almost hate hating them for that choice and his challenge very similar to the challenge you're making to us in this he says at church we will not do that and we should never do that in the sense that we will not support you because the bible teaches it is wrong it is not God's design, but you're always welcome at the table, knowing that because you're made in his image, you have a place and you have value. And yeah, he challenges I mean, the church. Go ahead. Uh, I, I have, I have sin. Uh, so do I. Yeah. And so do you. Yeah. Um, the problem. And by the way, folks, we struggle with a daily that, that's the, something the I think people need to hear about pastors. We struggle the, with our sinfulness daily. Yes. And so what I what I am saying plainly in answering this question is where does the church stand to grow? The church stands to grow by not legitimizing our own sin at the cost of missing opportunities to present the the gospel um, because we because we are comfortable with our sin and not comfortable with theirs or yours. Um, I'm not getting into is, is, is are all sins equal right now, but before God, any sin makes us unrighteous and therefore uh, not able to be in his presence and creates a separation between us. Right. Um, yet I'm more comfortable with my sin than I am yours. And that, if we're talking about loving as Christ is where we have the greatest opportunity to grow in the loving humility of the Christ who Paul is led of the Spirit to teach us about and teach the Philippian church about in Philippians chapter 2. And I think it's connecting rather well. Um, one of the things that also resonates this is how in the process of his life, the death, the resurrection, there is a period of time that you alluded to to make the point uh, of validating the gospel and showing himself to witnesses. Jesus uh, was on the, earth, on the earth for 40 days before he ascended. And he, I, I wanted to pick your brain on that. Um, before ascending to heaven, how does this make godly love more personal? And how does this 40-day period um, connect uh, with again the the advent aspect as well as the following the footsteps of the one who is resurrected because at this point he's no longer the crucified Christ he's still crucified but now he's the resurrected Christ so how does this connect sure so um i guess let me let me start with the 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 crucified Christ, and then maybe my my hamster wheel will will jump onto the resurrected Christ. <laughs> in, sure. in terms of the personal expression, um, it is it is altogether unique and um, altogether unfathomable within the human conscience our human mind, the, the creative spirit that we have to come up with the idea that a God 
would become a man. You look at all the other world religions, no one has that idea. Um, and so in, in talking about the personal nature of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, adding to himself humanity, and the scripture teaches us, um, he knew every infirmity we did. Um, we talk about a babe in a manger. I, I promise you, despite what the hymn says, he cried as a baby. <laughs> he yeah. did a diaper change um, if they had diapers. I'm not sure about pampering things uh, back then. but, but Probably anyway. half cloth. Anyway, yeah. The, the, he knew the struggle of physical limitations. Right. He may not have been the fastest boy in the group when it came to childhood games. He may not have won every game. Um, he may not have designed every chair or table to his father's perfect liking or attention to detail. Um, yet he knew not sin. So exposed when exposed to temptation to falter. He never did. Um, he would know pain as we know it. We scab a knee. He did. Right. Um, to, for God to identify with our plight is altogether unique and altogether personal. Um, we, we know that we know that Jesus is referred to as, man, as Emmanuel, God with us. Um, that is in, in one sense, the, the awareness that God is literally with us as he added to himself humanity. Right. So the personalization of the, the resurrected Christ, um, I've never thought about that question, frankly. Um, so I am theologizing, if that's a word on the fly. Um, so maybe you've thought about an answer to this and you can, you can back clean up. Um, I'm thinking <laughs> about the, the personalization of the resurrection itself. Right. Um, his, his 40 days on earth after the resurrection personalize for us, um, the truth that those who die in Christ will too join him in the resurrection. And so there's a, a personalization in, in being raised by the spirits that I believe is an empowering hope for the Christian faith. Um, aside from the fact of that, yes, there's the personalization in the um, verification or the validation of the, the Christian claims that, you know, there was there's a lot of people who saw Jesus die. And there's even more people who saw him alive after he died. Wow. Um, and you can go read all the psychological articles, reports of mass uh, psychological events where people believe uh, some fictional notion. They just don't happen. Right, so when, right. when scripture says more than 500 saw him, um, when scripture says that there were a dozen who who sat at his feet and listened to his teaching after the resurrection personally, um, when scripture gives us account that those who encountered the resurrected Christ would 
teach that, would preach that, would be um, persecuted and killed for that. People don't naturally die for a lie. Right. Um, the four or five who tried to protect Nixon in the Watergate scandal, PhDs, they squawked the minute that the American media started to apply some scrutiny to them. And right. they were protecting, from all intents and purposes, the most powerful man in the world. Right. They squawked. Yet you have countless many going to their deaths because they encountered this resurrected one that personalizes the validity of the faith. And in addition to the fact that, there, that there's the personalization of the resurrection. Right. Which, uh, no need for cleanup, given the answer you've given, which I had not considered. The only thing that does come to mind is the way that God has moved uh, from Genesis all the way through uh, what we've read so far in the chronological reading plan. There were 40 years in the wilderness, uh, the 40 days of fasting and prayer. There's there's also the, the concept of uh, the Ark of the Covenant, not the Ark of the Covenant, but Noah's Ark. Uh, dealing through the through the flood for just as many days, and uh, part of me wonders if through the theologizing of just this bro this break brought to you by Topo Chico. Anyway, I wonder if um, uh, the forty days that Jesus Christ remains resurrected upon the earth, not yet glorified because he's not ascended, but revived by the power of the Holy Spirit, God resurrecting God, which is what it is. I, I know it's mind-blowing. Um, I wonder if this is not a way for God to redeem the the waiting period. Again, the an advent upon an advent, where this is now the, the beginning of the end of days, uh, where the kingdom has already been started, I'm going to give you the very last portion of this uh, teaching, and then I'm going. And when I come back, it, it's 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 a wrap. We're done. Um, that that's where my 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 mind takes me, just by going to the way that God has done that in the symbolic number of forty, which usually is a time of preparation. Right. So, see, that's why we had to do it on the fly, man. I wasn't thinking <laughs> about that. My brain is weird, but we make a good we make a good pair. I think we make yeah. a good pair. Okay, so any other thoughts on this question on the resurrection, but not yet ascended Christ on Earth? No, any sir. other thoughts? All right, don't be so formal, sir. Come on, dude, don't be so formal. Uh oh, are you there? See, can you? Okay, just making sure. Okay, so I have one final question. Are you going to come back to video? Did you video. lose me? Uh, I don't see your, your video stream. I don't know what happened. Okay, it says it's recording. Just don't, don't turn off. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so the fifth question uh, is this. As... As you were closing down the sermon, you were getting ready to provide us with the invitation. Uh, you made the following um, statement. Um, Jesus, uh, there's a difference between Jesus is the Lord and Jesus is my Lord. Those are two different things. Um, 
So how do we exp explain this to people who may who may be living in, in, in a state of confusion about whether they're safe or not, uh, because there is such a thing, unfortunately. And how do we also explain this to our listeners who may be dealing with uh, people who claim to be Christians, but the there's no fruit bearing in their lives? Because this is a very important question, I think. Sure. I would begin in this way. Um, and I think I may have said it this way on Sunday. It, it's one thing to say Jesus is the Lord. And it's a completely different thing to say that Jesus is my Lord. Um, right. So we can say, um, what can we say? Let me try to think of a parallel to this. Um, I can say that I'm a husband. And that is true because I've gone through a ceremony. Um, but it's another thing to be a man who is fully committed to a woman in a covenantal relationship where I've expressed my full commitment to that person, my undivided, full attention and committed uh, commitment to that person. Um, through thick and thin, um, in and versus being somebody who wears a ring, um, yet doesn't honor that commitment at all. Um, so the idea is this: it's one thing to say that that Jesus is God. It's one thing to say that uh, all things have been made by Him, all things have been made through Him. It's one thing to have like a mental acceptance of the the claims of Christ um, and saying, yeah, I know Jesus is God. And it's another thing to live a life in obedience to him, um, surrendered to him. And where he is not just the Lord, but he is your Lord. Um, and so this is, this is the struggle. We, we, we will say Jesus is my savior, but Jesus, we don't often will also add through action or through thought that Jesus is truly our, my Lord. Um, for someone to lord over you, that means that they that they are the ones who have authority over you or in your life. And so the question I would beg somebody who might be struggling with this is, who who who's in charge of you? And we might joke. At, my joke as a husband, I'd say my wife is in charge of me, and I and I, and I say that jokingly, um, because I'll come back to the point that I made about the person. Uh, who I know uh, went shopping for somebody and wound up buying gifts for themselves. Um, we desire to remain as individually autonomous people. In other words, we want to stay in charge of ourselves. And what, what the call of the Christian is, is to abandon ourselves, just like Jesus abandoned all of his divine right, if you will. Um, our call is to that call of self-denial and our call is to be enslaved 
very loaded term these days, I understand, but to be enslaved to Jesus. I'm using right. biblical terms right now, but to be fully allegiant to Jesus, if I can say it in a easier sounding term for contemporary American. Ears. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that that's exactly it, to be allegiant to him. Um, and if I can say it this way, come hell or high water. Um, not just not just when it's okay and I don't have anything else to do on Sunday or um, because I get to carry a get out of hell free card or something, but to to be a disciple of Jesus through thick and thin, um, an unwavering commitment to Him who went to and through a cross for you. Um, so where the word that He has given to us, the Bible. We know to be true, we know to be without error, and we know to be authoritative in our lives so that if we're out of step with the Word of God, it's that the problem's not with the Word of God, the problem is with us. And so right. we're, we're submitting to Him and correcting our courses so that the train tracks of our lives align ultimately the gospel train track that Jesus is leading us down. Right. Okay. Uh, totally good. I, I, I think um, you also made a, this is now about a month, two months ago, you actually uh, in your sermon made the connection that it's more than just knowing it here, but it's a connection between here and here, meaning between your front and your frontal lobe and your heart. Uh, it's a it's a willful acknowledgement, but it's also the binding of our being to to that knowledge and living accordingly. There's a, a brother in our church who who preached a sermon. I, I don't recall the title specifically. I think it was called like Twelve Inches from Glory," something like that. And the the, the dominant illustration uh, was an illustration about, um, a Super Bowl game that was played between the Tennessee Titans and the St. Louis Rams. Um, I forget the year this is late nineties, early two thousands, uh, Kurt Warner's okay. the Rams quarterback, Steve McNair's the Titans quarterback. Titans have the ball times, uh, winding down. They're down They're They're within touchdown. They score a touchdown. They win the game. Um, Titans quarterback hits a wide receiver on a slant and he's trying to reach for the goal line. If that ball crosses the goal line, the Tennessee Titans will be Super Bowl champions. But as he reaches, the defender is able to restrain him so that he is literally 12 inches from his team winning the Super Bowl and the clock runs out. Ouch. I don't know how how I've never lined up a ruler, but the idea here is that we might be 12 inches from genuine faith, right? Yeah. Where we may have it here, but we like it here. Right. And I think, um, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Uh, something weird. Anyway, so uh, to me, that's, uh, as I understand it, it's something that becomes very difficult, especially in a first world country like the U.S., where you and I live, where we have people who are exposed to uh, many versions of the quote-unquote gospel, 
and they may know it all here or they may know it like emotionally but there's no submission of the will uh, or they may know it all intellectually but then there's no true action that flows out of a loving desire to serve God uh, especially in the Bible Belt where we see that being an issue um, but anyway I think I think that that was a, a good answer that you gave it was of course always good I have one bonus question, a question that just popped into mind. Um, and I think this one's going to be more on the heartfelt side. So in our community, we've known of a number of people that have died. Sure. And right now we are looking at a little less than two weeks, right, uh, for Christmas Day. And if people in our community have, are going through this, there's no doubt that there will be people uh, who listen to this that either are going through it or know someone who has lost a loved one just before the holiday season, the, the, the greatest day uh, next to Easter Sunday. What would be a word of encouragement and love that you could offer those who are going or or know someone who's going through this the first thing that i would remind us i believe it's in the 34th psalm in the 18th verse god draws near to the brokenhearted um so in in the brokenheartedness of our grief and mourning of loss even if that loss is not fresh but it's a remembrance of that loss. Be reminded that God promises that he draws near to you in those moments. God is not, um, God is not unaware of the pain of death. Um, we find in the 11th chapter of John that at the, the death of Jesus's own friend, Lazarus, shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept, Jesus wept at the the thoughts at the reality of death for his friend even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead um we find later on in the new testament that there's a church who's struggling with the idea of death they encountered a whole lot of it um in fact some of them thought that the resurrection had happened already and that they'd missed it and that they were never going to see their loved ones again. Um, and they and this was a, a pressing thing because they knew uh, like their existence was kind of defined by death. Um, Paul writes Come to, to them, faith in Jesus, die in the Colosseum. Come to faith in Jesus, be killed in the public square. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't just like mass cancer thing. You know, it was it was they were friends and family, loved ones dying all the time because they came to faith. Right. Um, and they were faithful to the one who who saved them. Um, and so there's. The Apostle Paul, who's led of the spirit, who says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. This is First Thessalonians chapter four. I do not want you to be uninformed for we are not those who grieve without hope um what he's speaking to is as the community of believers uh we can come to the the subject of death and the gospel allows us to have our perspective changed 
um, and it, the, the the gospel undermines the co- the gospel inverts what what the world understands about things. So on the right. subject of death, um, we approach a graveside, we approach a cemetery, and we are we're led to believe that that's a that's a final thing. Yet the gospel tells us that's not the end. Um, and so Paul tells that church, I don't want you to be uninformed. We're not those who grieve without hope. In other words, we don't grieve with the sense that that, that life is gone, not to be anymore, not to be ever seen again. And that uh, they just like the lights went out and the party's over and we've got to just press on. No. Right. Um, in fact, what he tells us there is that we have hope. We have hope because of Christ. Um, And that the conclusion of that, he says that we're to encourage one another with this truth. So I would encourage you in this way. I encourage you based upon the reality and truth of Scripture. God is with you. God is drawing near to you in the midst of your brokenheartedness and pain. And I would offer comfort to you from God's word that reminds us that though he's come once, he's coming again. And we wait for that day. I don't know how long we wait, but it's coming. And in that day, on that day, scripture says the dead in Christ will rise. Um, so anyone who's gone to the grave before us, if they were, if they were, um, uh, if they went into death in Christ, it will be raised in the magnificence and glory of the power of the Holy Spirit, um, with imperishable bodies, mm. um, for, for us to, to rejoice in as we celebrate our savior for eternity. So we have that lasting hope. Right. We have our memories of those whom we love that are not with us. But we've said, we haven't said a, a lasting goodbye. It's a see you later. Right. And I, think, I think that's encouraging, uh, especially as we uh, come to many people the very first Christmas, just days or weeks after losing a loved one. So that's very meaningful. Thank you for that, Brother Nam. Appreciate that. Any closing thoughts? Remember, Christmas begins with Christ. <laughs>